Welcome to another New History of Old Texas bonus episode. So on the heels of the anniversary of the Battle of Medina, uh, and on the heels of some exciting progress in our search for the battlefield, I thought I'd share with y'all here a talk that I did earlier this year. It was inspired by my most recent season on the Republic of the Rio Grande, but it's relevant to our Battle of Medina search as well. See if you buy my argument that maybe, just maybe, the reason that Texans have such a disproportionate pride in their independence is because we have our very own definition of independence, of autonomy within a tradition, or at least a slightly different notion of those ideals than the Anglo-American world holds. I hope you enjoy. Thank you. I've got a lab here. Good afternoon, and thank you again for having me. Welcome to my hometown here of San Antonio. I'm going to try to distill for you guys in about 20, 30 minutes what it's taken me about 30 hours to talk about in the course of, of a podcast that I have, which, which is called A New History of Old Texas. And the inspiration for the podcast is the fact that I have worked on and off, at least, for most of the last 20 years in northern Mexico. And, and I just continue to be fascinated by all the ways in which I find the cultural and even ideological foundations of, of Texas in northern Mexico, which may sound pretty self-evident if you know anything about the history of Texas, but, but it wasn't ever taught to me explicitly. And so it's, it's kind of become a project of mine to relearn the history that I learned growing up. And, and that's what I'm going to share a little bit with you today. And starting with the first season I did, which was really about the founding and the early history of San, San Antonio. So I tried to put myself back in the eyes of somebody here in 1700. And what would they have seen when they came to San Antonio? I mean, the first thing, the, the reason why Native Americans settled here was this concentration of springs. It may have been the greatest concentration of springs you know, in, in, in the New World. And this is commemorated most famously in the old Pearl Beer slogan, if you guys remember this. This is from the land of 1,100 springs. And there's all these stories of people trying to set foundations and springs popping up. And so anyway, you can imagine this, this little kind of verdant green oasis which sat here, but which also sat here in San Antonio kind of right at the, at the point where a bunch of different ecosystems merged together. And each of those different landforms they created types of people around them, that the natives came to reflect the land, the landforms that were around them. You had you know, the, the piney woods and, and, and the wooded areas to the east with the Hassanai and the corn-growing Caddo Indians. You had the coastal Karankawas here southeast of us. You had to the northwest, the, 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 in the hill country and up in the Texas plains, the newly mounted uh, Lipan Apaches and, and very soon thereafter the Comanches. And you had kind of trailing down to the southwest the, these Coahuiltecan foragers, which lived a similar lifestyle as the other parts of northern Mexico where increasingly the Spanish were coming up through. So around 1700, the first Spanish entradas, uh, entradas uh, get up here. And uh, what they find, what's important to them about San Antonio, is it's about halfway between the growing settlements of French and English North America and their own settlements that were up around Monclova around this time. Which is So anyway, so the point being that you know, when the people came and settled here in San Antonio, at least in this part of Texas, what they thought they had found was kind of a geographic navel of the continent. Um, and unfortunately, for the early history of Texas and of San Antonio specifically, they were right. For the first 150 years of San Antonio's history, it's the most contested point on the continent. So every five or ten years, there are these really horrific raids and battles that go back and forth. After its initial founding in 1718 by, by basically by Franciscan friars and, and, uh, and a detachment of Spanish, uh, Spanish soldiers, the civic government is founded in 1731 by a group of Canary Islanders, which you'll notice like the bar down here is called Los Canarias, and there's all these little uh, remnants of that too. Nine days after the Canary Islanders arrived, they were attacked by Apaches. 
1745, the city is almost wiped off the map by, by an Apache attack, but the, the citizenry come together and actually make peace with the Apaches and then make common cause against the Comanches. Uh, and in 1759, they actually march 400 miles into Comanche territory in what's known as the Battle of Twin Villages. It occurs up on the Red River uh, near the, the, the settlement or the, the town of Spanish Fort today, which ironically was not a Spanish fort. <laughs> it actually was a Native American fort that was attacked by the Spanish. But this is an interesting example, too, of historiography kind of gone awry, that if you read this about this battle, or if you read about this battle in fourth grade or seventh grade or something like that, you probably read about the Battle of Twin Villages as kind of a failed Spanish expedition, but it wasn't. The guy who came after the Spanish colonel who led it gave that impression because it was in his interest to do so. Never under underestimate bureaucratic pettiness in history or at any level. It was, in, it was in his interest to make it look bad, but the fact was this march essentially kind of fought the Comanches to a truce, you know, an uneasy truce, but a truce that would more or less hold between early Tejanos and early Texans and Comanches for, for another 60 years, where they would become critical trading partners with each other, not just, you know, warring partners with each other. But the really interesting thing about this, too, is that in the same way as kind of the land had shaped the natives that, that had been here before, it comes to shape the Tejanos that are starting to live here as well. And they become, because they have to be, incredibly tough, just like the natives who had preceded them. And they become all of this with very little help from a very distant Spanish government to which they nominally owed allegiance. And part of what this had to do with, I think, is that you know, Spanish royal authorities, they didn't really know what to make of this, quote unquote, ragged band of men of all colors, you know, end quote. Early Texas was a caste-defying mix of, of Native Americans, of, of Spaniards, of Franciscans, of Canarians, of, 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 of a not insignificant number of, of Afro-Tejanos or Afro-Mexicanos also, particularly in the Rio Grande Valley and even in parts of San Antonio. If you believe some of the earlier census designations that they talk about, at one point something like two-thirds of early San Antonians had some African ancestry. But what starts to happen in this incredibly isolated spot up here in Texas is that you start to develop these these proto-democratic institutions. You start to develop some, some really kind of functional representative civic government. And again, too, this kind of confounded and, and confused you know, Spanish viceregal authorities and stuff. And, and I've thought about this in the context of, of Frederick Jackson Turner's you know, famous frontier thesis, which postulates that the frontier creates a certain kind of person, person that is uniquely inclined toward representative government and needing something like that. And the, the theory has gone up and down in, in, over the last hundred years in, in popularity. But I would note that San Antonio and, and early Texas gives a pretty good argument in favor of that. And it's an interesting argument, too, because... If that theory is to have any validity, it can't be that it just works on Anglo, on Anglo-American people. It has to work on people of all backgrounds. And, and so interestingly, San Antonio in, in early Texas seems to provide some of that. But I guess I want to clarify, too, that like this form of proto-democratic government, this form, frankly, of civic tolerance that starts to develop, it, it's not a you know, kumbaya, drum circle, postmodern kind of warm and happy feelings. Like, I mean, this is still a tense world. This is short li lifespans. This is, this is a tough place to make a living. You know, but what, what, the way I've described it is, it's something like some kind of tolerance born of toughness. It, it, it's a tolerance derived from the very harsh realities in which they're living. There's not enough time to invent grievances in this kind of setting. You know, that there's just, it's not productive, it's not useful. And so to the extent that as long as you've got my back when, when stuff gets really bad, you can do you however you want. I, I, that's not, that's not going to be my business. And this is how you end up with this really interesting mixed society, which is, this is a, a statue in front of the Bear County Courthouse, which kind of represents these different streams that informed and, and founded early San Antonio of, of the Franciscans, of the First Soldiers, of the Native Americans, of the Friars. And so as I say that out loud and as I start to think about tolerance with toughness in this, I at least start to hear kind of the foundations of a very recognizable Texas creed and kind of a recognizable set of Texan ideals. And the people, these early, early Tejanos around this time, were willing to fight and die for these ideals. 
So this is kind of in, in season two of my podcast, what I really focus on is this kind of first Texas revolution, which spins out of Father Miguel Hidalgo's uh, war for Mexican independence in Spain. So September 16th, 1810, uh, also known as the de Septiembre, Father Miguel Hidalgo unleashes this primal scream of, of, of protest against 300 years of Spanish rule in North America and sets off this wave of revolution that sweeps across Spanish North America uh, more rapidly than I think any of them could have imagined. And, and so by, by January, so what was that, four or five months later, San Antonio has even been affected by this. And San Antonio launches its own little revolt, which comes, which comes to be known as the De Las Casas Revolt. Unfortunately, this initial revolt doesn't go particularly well for these early insurgents. So Father Miguel Hidalgo actually marches all the way to Mexico City, but then gets, starts getting beat back by the, royalist, the Spanish royalist forces. And they drive him actually all the way up through central Mexico, all the way up through the highlands, all the way up into Coahuila where by this time, Father Hidalgo is actually, where he's trying to go is to Texas. He's trying to get to San Antonio to reconstitute his revolution there so that he can access aid from, from the Anglo-American, uh, from, from the early United States, and he views it as a very remote place that's also very hostile to Spanish royalist forces. Alas, he doesn't make it, and of course he doesn't know by this time either that San Antonio has suffered its own counter-revolt and has fallen back into Spanish royalist, royalist arms. And in March of 1811, he's actually captured in Coahuila and, and carried off for execution. But Four days before that happens, he anoints a, a gentleman by the name of Jose Bernardo Gutierrez de Lara, who's a revolutionary from the Rio Grande. He anoints him as his emissary to the United States. He's the one who's going to carry the torch into Texas and try and raise resources in the United States to continue this fight for Mexican independence. And so Gutierrez de Lara, over the course of the next year, undergoes this incredible journey that sees him traveling basically on foot to Washington, D.C., to Philadelphia, actually. He's having to kill, the, the Spanish king sends assassins to try and kill him, and he has to and Gutierrez de Lara turns around on them and actually ends up getting the jump on them and killing them. As he says in his memoirs, I don't carry my arms to play with. So, I mean, he's, 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 a, he's a tough, tough guy. And, and, and April, in August of uh, 1812 finds him back on the Sabine River where he's, he's amassed a very small, about 300-man mixed force of Anglo-Americans, of Tejanos, and of uh, Native Americans who in, in, in August of, of 1812 march across the Sabine and capture Nacogdoches. They capture Nacogdoches. From there, they march on down to Goliad, and they, in like a five-month-long series of battles of siege and counter-siege, they actually defeat the Spanish royalist forces in Goliad, march up into San Antonio, and, and defeat them in March of, 1813, uh, March of 1813. And so, by 1813, this little ragtag force has rid Texas entirely of any Spanish royalist presence. And on April 6th, 1813, they actually declare the first independent state of Texas. So this here, this is a copy of, of, of the first Texas Declaration of Independence. This is from the, the Archivo General de la Nación, the, the National Archives in Mexico City. And it's a really, really amazing document. And I want to read for you kind of a, a few lines from it, because I think you'll recognize some, and, and there's some lessons we can draw from it. So it opens, uh, quote, No se el pueblo de la, de la provincia de Texas, which is, you know, we the people of the province of Texas, swearing by the supreme judge of the universe the rightness of our intentions, declare that the binds that have held us beneath the domination of European Spain are forever broken, that we are free and independent, that we have the right to establish our own government, and that going forward all legitimate authority rises from the people, and to the people alone belongs the right to govern that from here on out we are forever free of duty or obligation to any foreign power. A decent respect for our own dignity and the opinions of the world requires that we relate the causes that have brought about this measure. And so what I hope you hear in that, I mean, you hear echoes of the American Declaration of Independence. And, and that's, that's conscious, that's very conscious. And, and in fact, actually, the, the document goes on and will refer to, to, to natural law three or four times during the document, which is interesting because that is not the tradition of, 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 of the Hispanic world. The Hispanic world comes from the civil law tradition. So it's, it's making these very self-conscious appeals to kind of the, the Anglo-American tradition that's up there. 
But the document shifts about halfway through. It shifts through and it does start talking about the derechos sagrados del hombre, the sacred rights of man. It starts making direct appeals to the civil law tradition. And, and, and it cites a list of grievances, which is going to sound very familiar to anyone who's read the 1836 Texas Declaration of Independence as well. These are decidedly local grievances, and these are long-held grievances too. But what I find really fascinating too is, is, is how it ends and how unequivocally it declares again this idea of being free of duty or obligation to any foreign power, of being free and independent, but it makes one other claim toward the end too. It also claims that this revolution in Texas, this new independent state of Texas, is going to be quote-unquote inviolably joined to their brothers in Mexico. It feels like a little bit of a contradiction almost, right? That you're free and independent, but you're also inviolably joined. Like, what does that mean? And by the way, uh, Mexico's equivalent, Mexico's Declaration of Independence, won't come until about six months later. So this is one of the first, if not the first, Declaration of Independence in, in, in the Hispanic world. And so anyway, I'll come back to that a little bit, because that contradiction between being free and independent and still being inviolably joined, I, I think, is an interesting tension. So uh, you know, to emphasize their commitment, they conclude this first Declaration of Independence with, with these powerful wor uh, words here, quote, uh, we each and all solemnly swear before the Holy Ghost, before our brothers throughout this republic, and before the universe at large that we will defend and sustain to the very end, hasta la última extremidad, our new nation and the principles upon which it was founded with our fortunes and with our lives, end quote. And they would. On August 18th, 1813, a combined army of Tejanos, Native Americans, and, uh, and Anglo-American volunteers they called themselves the, the Ejército Republicano del Norte, the, the Republican Army of the North, Republican being kind of the term of contrast with royalism, you know, royalism and republicanism. They march out on August 18th, and they are crushed in open battle somewhere about 10, 15 miles south of where we're standing today. We actually don't know where that battlefield is. That's another project associated with, with this podcast where we're actively looking for the site of the battlefield, and we may have started just recently to find some, some pretty cool artifacts. But the, the point for this is that it's this terrible, terrible massacre. You know, something like a thousand of these republicanos are, are massacred on the field of battle. Their bones are left there for nine years. They're not allowed to bury them. Then the Spanish Royalist Army marches into San Antonio the next day. It imprisons all the men, pulls them out of, they try to take sanctuary in San Fernando Church here, pulls them out, throws them in a granary. Eight of them die of suffocation that, that night. It's August, you know, it's hot. They're stuffing them in this tiny room. Um, they would execute 327 civilian men over the next three months. Um, the women, they throw into another building known as La Quinta. For 54 days, they're forced to basically grind corn and make tortillas for 20 hours a day. They're, they talk about their fingernails are falling off. You know, they're insulted, assaulted, and worse. Uh, their children at one point are stripped from them and thrown out in, into the street to starve. So like these women are hearing their children crying and you know, begging them for help outside. So it's this incredibly tragic, incredibly traumatic event that informs the rest of Texas history for the next, for the next century for sure. It's hard to picture another province that suffers from Mexican independence the way that Texas does. And so at the end of this, this terrible experience, Texas is, is decimated. Texas has half, half of the male population of Texas is probably killed. The, the remaining survivors are, of course, deeply traumatized. And Texas is poor. Texas is deeply, deeply poor. The, the per capita wealth of Texas, at, when Mexico finally does win its independence in 1821, is something like 1 278th the average per capita wealth of, of someone in Mexico City. So. And by the way, too, the other kind of deeply unsatisfying part, unsatisfying part of that drama, too, is that the people who ultimately win Mexican independence are mostly the people who were fighting against it for the first 10 years. They, they kind of flip at the very end. And so it's not this neat, clean, good guys, bad guys story. 
So most Tejanos uh, would spend the next decade in exile, the years between 1813 and 1821-22. And many of them, of course, in the United States as the nearest neighbor and the country with whom they had started developing these trade relationships, especially uh, Louisiana, Natchitoches, uh, where my father was born, actually. Natchitoches is, is where a lot of them take up re re residence. And so when they're allowed to return to Texas in the 1820s, leading Tejanos, they pin their hopes on Anglo-American immigration as the great hope for the economic development of their impoverished state. And specifically, what they pinned it on is the booming cotton economy, which has started to take off in the Deep South at this time. Now, of course, you can't talk about the cotton economy without talking about slavery, and you shouldn't try to. But I'll also encourage us, too, is that we shouldn't also fall into the error of mistaking East Texas history for the history of the entire state of Texas, too. Because there's other things going on that the Tejanos are doing in other parts of the state that are working as a part of a larger vision that they have. And the, the best articulation of this larger vision I've heard is, is in this book here. It's, it's from Lorenzo de Zavala, who becomes the first vice president of Texas. And he writes this book called Viaje de, de, a los Estados Unidos de Norte America. So one year before Alexis de Tocqueville goes to on his famous journey around North America that becomes that famous book, Democracy in America, de Zavala does the same thing. And he writes what, for me, frankly, is a much more insightful account of this and much more relevant for us as Texans. If, you, if I had my way, I would replace the Tocqueville in Texas schools with this one. I mean, a French aristocrat versus, like, a first vice president of Texas, this is just much more relevant, it seems like, to the experience that, that we end up living. But he has this incredible passage where he talks about kind of this, this grand vision that they have, is that what Tejanos really want to do is create a, quote, mixed society of the American system and the Spanish customs and traditions, which would eventually represent the triumph of the new world over the tired ideas and prejudices of the old. With the goal of doing that, they were able to stomach a lot of political and moral compromises that, that are difficult. But it's a vision whose boldness I think Texas and Tejanos don't get enough credit for because the idea of marrying the political system of one society with the cultural foundations of another, it's no small thing. And it requires a certain form of tolerance, again, a certain form of tolerance born of, of toughness. Well, and also toughness too because they were going to have to fight to make it a reality. So given all this background, given this, this ideological background, it should be no surprise that Tejanos, led by Juan Seguin, were uh, among the first to march down into Coahuila in 1834 with kind of the first centralist and you know, Santa Ana-led uh, usurpations of, of, of some of the, the old constitution of 1824. It should be no surprise that Tejanos actually served in greater proportions to their population than Anglos did in the coming battles to follow in 1836. And it should come as no surprise either that they were the critical rear guard during the famous runaway scrape. They were the critical eyes and ears following Santa Ana until he set up camp on, on the San Jacinto Creek on April 21st, 1836. And one of my, my great illustrations of this is, I, so th th this list here is the list of the Tejanos who fought at San Jacinto under Juan Seguin. And the names in bold are, are people, it's the same list, but the names in bold are the people who had direct ancestors who fought as a part of the Republican Army of the North in 1813. The ones who are underlined are people who had direct ancestors who were leaders of the revolt in 1813. And by the way, there's two more there. You, you see Arriola and, and, and Barcinas. I just can't find more information about them, but they were born in San Antonio in 1806. I am certain they've suffered in some way through the horrors of the aftermath of the Battle of Medina. There's, I'd lay odds that they, they probably too have some connection to this. But the point being that for, for these Tejanos, the, this second Texas Revolution in 1836 or whatever, it's, it's not a new fight, it's a rematch. And especially if I tell you that some of the names of the people on the other side in 1836 who had been royalists, some of them at the Battle of Medina, most famously, Santa Ana. Santa Ana had been a first lieutenant on the royalist side during the Battle of Medina. But other ones too, uh, Urrea, Filisoa, Ugartechea, all these other famous kind of officers in Santa Ana's army in 1836 had been royalists before this too. And so it's, it's also not an accident or not a coincidence, I don't think, I can't prove this, but I don't think 
that when it comes time to choose a name for this new republic uh, in 1836, they very consciously go with this phrasing of the Republic of Texas, which we don't think twice about now. But th this, this chart is kind of cool. So th this is a tool called Ingram Viewer on, on, on Google. You can go back on Google and basically search the, occur the occurrence or the appearance of words throughout all the millions of books they've scanned since the beginning of written history. And what I want you to note here is that the red line is the search history for, if you look for Republica de, in other words, the Spanish for, for form of Republic of. The blue one is the English version, Republic of. You will note that in the 1810s and 20s, Republica de becomes just every revolution in the Spanish-speaking world is a Republica de something, you know? And so it's not a coincidence that, and it's descended from this term, Republicanos, this idea, it's an anti-royalist term is what it is. I don't think it's a coincidence that they go back that, that when, they're, when they're founding this republic in 1836 and, and they hearken back exactly to this kind of language which comes primarily from the Spanish-speaking world. But not long after the Republic of Texas begins, you start to see some, some friction, some fraying of this relationship, of this, this critical alliance between old Tejanos and, and Anglo-Texians. And in fact, there's this anecdote from the early, from the first day of the siege of the Alamo that, that I've often thought back to when I think about this. The, the way the anecdote goes is that Jim Bowie and Juan Seguin are composing a letter to send out to Santa Ana. And by this time, you know, Jim Bowie's already fallen sick. He's got kind of a trembling hand, so he can't write. And so Juan Seguin is basically kind of writing. He, he's the, the dictator. He, he's the penman. He, he's the one who's writing this stuff out. And as he finishes, Juan Seguin finishes his letter with Dios y Federación, God and Federation which is the very customary kind of Mexican federalist uh, Republican closing, you know, salutation on a letter. And Jim Bowie, though, scratches it out. And you can see a copy of this letter online. And with his kind of trembling hand, he writes, Dios y Texas, God and Texas. And so when I hear that, or when I heard that, at least growing up, I always thought of that as like, that was the great moment where they realized what they're fighting for, this independent Texas. But what you never get in that anecdote is like, once again's response. <laughs> I mean, is there actually some deep, or even tragic foreshadowing here of some kind of misunderstanding or misalignment of kind of what these, these two groups are, are, are fighting for. And what I'll argue is we actually do have kind of a control case to study this and to try and get an idea for this. And this is what I covered in the most recent season of my podcast, The Republic of the Rio Grande. So another way to think of this is it's like a third Texas revolution in, in a way too. So the short version, um, in 1838, well, after the Centralist Army is defeated at the Battle of San Jacinto, they retreat to these cities along the Rio Grande, which are primarily on the Mexican side of the Rio Grande today, except for Laredo, which, which was founded on the northern side. So the army kind of retreats to these cities along the Rio Grande, and they become just a total burden, just a total pain in the neck to all of the locals who are living there because they're requisitioning things, they're having to tax things, they're taking livestock or whatever. And so eventually by 1838, they get fed up with this, and partly inspired by the example of what Texas had done you know, a couple years earlier, they declare their own revolution. Led by, by this guy, Antonio Zapata, who's an Afro-Tejano, a part Native American descent, he declares this, the, uh, this Republic of the Rio Grande and conducts this incredible military campaign that basically keeps like four Mexican centralist armies at bay for, for at least a year while they establish this government. They actually declare it up on the Nueces River in 1839. It ends tragically, and it ends with Zapata being executed. It ends with the movement put down. The, the reason I, I find it interesting is that it has a lot of parallels to the Texas Revolution of 1835-36. In fact, you've even got a lot of the same, same players in it. Like, once again, actually, figures kind of prominently here. You've got a lot of Anglo-Americans involved in, in the same way, Anglo-Texians. Except the Anglo-Texians never quite become the controlling force in this movement. You know, in Texas in 1835-36, Anglos by that point were at least 80% of the population. Well, that's not the case in the Rio Grande at all. You know, they, they were there minorities at that point to the extent they were there, and they were, a lot of them were there primarily as mercenaries in, in this conflict. And so it remains kind of a Tejano-led movement. 
And throughout that movement, even as they're fighting these centralist armies from Mexico City, even as they're forming a new government, they're, they're always kind of refusing to secede, to secede from the larger Mexican confederation, the, Me the Mexican project. And, and again, it goes back to that tension that we identified in the 1813 Declaration of Independence of like, what are you trying to do then? What are you trying to establish? You're trying to establish a new government. You're trying to become somehow independent, but why, why aren't you declaring your independence? And again, this, this becomes kind of the downfall of this movement because foreign nations can't support civil wars. So they can't support sides in a civil war. But you know, if, if the Republic of the Rio Grande had really openly declared itself as, as independent, could that have changed what they could have gotten support from, from the Republic of Texas or from the United States or something like that? But they clearly didn't want to. And I think, I, I, I don't think it's an accident. I mean, I, I, think, I think partly it's, it's drawn from some frustration, from some dissatisfaction that Tejanos in Texas are feeling by this time with the, the, the experiment of the Republic of Texas. I'm going to back up to try and describe where I think maybe it comes from or something. It's, so I have this idea from growing up anyway that like the, the Anglo-American notion of independence is very much tied to this idea of, of a fresh start. It's like a, it's a clean break. You know, we're going to break with the tired monarchies of Europe and the failed states of whatever. And like, you know, that, that's part of the compromise. You come to be a part of the American experiment, but it means you've got to kind of cut off what, what you leave. You can bring a little bit, you know, you can have a holiday or two or something like that, or, you know, like a parade. But like, you know, in general, like, you've got to kind of cut it off and start fresh here. But that's not what, what the Tejanos are going for in 1813 or 1836 or in 1840. You know, in fact, Lorenzo de Zavala even says it, you know, very openly in that quote I read earlier. But what they're after is a mixed system. They want a mixed system of, of the, the, the kind of uh, American political system and, and Spanish customs and, and, and traditions. And so what I argue is what, you know, what it seems they're really after in, in 1813 and 1836 and 1840 is, is this idea of autonomy within their tradition. You know, not independence from tradition, which maybe is kind of an exaggeration of like the Anglo-American version, but it's, it's autonomy within, within their tradition is, is kind of what they're after. That's a very Texan-sounding notion, <laughs> this idea of autonomy within a tradition. In fact, even I would argue that probably even captures... The, the kind of, te you know, Texas's continuing obsession with independence and with their history better than prevailing Anglo-American notions of, of, you know, fresh starts and generational reimaginings of the past. You know, there, there, there's something much more identifiably Texan about that. And I think it descends directly from kind of that same idea of, of tolerance with toughness. And anyway, I haven't quite tied all these ideas together yet. But I would argue that there's something, if not universally, at least continentally appealing, you know, about this vision this ideal of Texan toughness and tolerance and autonomy with tradition makes it a beacon for, for, for other people too. The example of this is basically for Mexico's various revolutions in, in 1857 with Benito Juarez, he's gonna come to Texas. He's gonna come to El Paso basically to set up his base of operations. In, in 1910, Francisco Madero, we're in the Madero room right now, okay? This, this is perfect for this. Francisco Madero comes and writes his famous Plan de San Luis de Potosí in San Antonio, despite its name. It was written in San Antonio. He wrote it at another hotel, which is no longer there anymore. But, but anyway, the point being, like, they come to San Antonio, they come to El Paso, they come to Texas to expand on, on, on kind of, or to promote this vision of, of, of independence. And I'd also argue, too, that I think the other recognition that society gives for the appealingness or the attractiveness of, of, of this kind of Texan ideal um, is, 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 is in the cowboy, is in the image of the cowboy. And I have the kind of ridiculous image of, this is from 1876-79, no actual cowboys dressed quite like that, you know? I mean, but, but the point is, like, even in the late 1800s, they're, they're emulating, they find something cool about this idea. And granted, the cowboy's a more complicated image now because of ways that he's been purposed and repurposed and things like that. But I still think it is best, you know, that that was always what, what he was meant to represent somehow, was, was the balancing of, of, of these really... You know, tough ideals to square together, of tolerance with toughness, of autonomy within tradition. And I still, frankly, if you ask me, you know, I, I, I think there, 
ideals that we could be proud to have uh, define and differentiate us and, and, and serve as, as kind of a vision to, to guide us into the future as well, too. Thank you, guys. Oh. <laughs>